So tonight I'm going to talk about a topic that is, um, how's the sound? Is it, is it okay? The sound is fine? Okay, good. It sounds a little funny up here. Um, I'm going to talk about a topic that is somewhat taboo in Buddhist circles. And um, before I say what it is, I want you to guess what it might be. If you've heard me talk about it in the last couple of months, you can't guess. Okay. So what do you think it might be? Taboo in Buddhism. Sex. No. <laughs> Good guess, but no. Desire. Not so taboo. God. No. Belief. Huh. Greet. Money. You win. <laughs> Some money. No. Um, yeah, I'm going to talk about money. I'm going to talk about money and dharma and how they fit together and how to think about it and how we as dharma practitioners may want to think about money or not want to think about money. And, um, and I really do this in the spirit of dialogue. So I'm going to talk for a while, and then I want to open it up to, uh, to the group and really hear what you have to say and get your thoughts and reflections, because this is a topic that I'm very, very interested in. A few months ago, I got an email, and it was from, and the email said, the subject heading was Seeking a Buddhist Family. And then inside it said, um, I'm a producer of a New York-based major network television show, and we are seeking a Buddhist, non-consumeristic, articulate family to switch with <laughs> a non-Buddhist, very consumeristic family, um, and they have to be articulate too, I guess, and, um, and we're looking desperately for Buddhists. Can you please help us? And so I just thought this was really crazy, so I called her, of course. And, um, and, I, and I found out that the show was the show Wife Swap. <laughs> you know that show? <laughs> so they want it, in, the, in this television show, you take um, one, 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 the mom from one family, and they live for a week in the shoes of another family. And so, um, so they end up... Um, they end up, you know, having to impose their regime and then live like the other family. So if you had to live in a Zen center, you know, you would um, imagine, imagine being someone who's never been exposed to Buddhism. You have to live in a Zen center and get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and meditate and so forth. So that was the idea, right? And um, I was, um, and I said to her, wow, this is a really interesting idea. And she said, yeah, we're really dying to have a Buddhist. It'd be so great to have a, Buddh- a Buddhist family. And I said, well, you know, unfortunately, most of the people that I know don't have the kind of values that I think would want to put on the television show. And she said, I know, but you can spread your Buddhism through this. <laughs> and I said, well, and she goes, but let me tell you this. There's a $20,000 honorarium for the family who, um, who would do it. Now, if anyone's interested, you can talk to me afterwards. But <laughs> it may be too late. And then she said, look, I know you Buddhists aren't interested in money. But you can use this money to give to your retreat center or you can give it to Tibet or something like that. And so, you know, I heard, I I had this conversation with her and I just thought, wow, this is really, really interesting. Money, you know, what is, do Buddhists really not care about money? Or what is our relationship to money? 
And I'm th I think about money in general in the culture and the way that money is so central to everything we do, all of our actions that we take. People will live, will take these jobs that they have, you know, that they hate just for the money and they'll work long hours because of the money. People kill over money. People are unethical over money all the time. People steal. People, you know, even Buddhists are unethical when it comes to money at times. Um, People, I mean, you've seen the, the newsreels from the 1930s when people jumped out the window in the middle of the Depression because they had no money. Or um, wars, pretty much every war that's ever been fought in all of human history has an economic base. So money is this hugely important thing in our culture. It's confusing. We're mostly not taught in a, about it in healthy ways. Some of us were, but a lot of us weren't. There's a huge number, as we know, of people who are, who, um, are in massive credit card debt. The bankruptcy law just got passed that, you know, is this horrible law for most people who are facing debt. This, I mean, money is this big, this giant issue in our culture. So my question really is, as Buddhists, What's our relationship to money? And maybe some of you don't identify as Buddhists, but as meditation practitioners, as people practicing and um, people practicing ethics and compassion and kindness, where does money fit in? And how do we understand it from a Dharma perspective? And I'm really interested in this because I don't believe that my practice stops at the cushion. I think it's a good, it's a great training ground, but then I go out into the world and how do we see the Dharma in every aspect of our lives? So what did the Buddha have to say about money? This is from a sutta of the Buddhas um, where he, um, it's called the Conditions of Welfare. And in this sutta, a very wealthy man went to the Buddha and said, what provides happiness for people who are not monks or nuns? What are the conditions of welfare? And uh, the Buddha answered that there are four conditions for householders' happiness. The first is effort, watchfulness, good friendship, and then a balanced livelihood. So effort means... Uh, it means in whatever profession you're in, working at it with diligence and persistence in order to acquire money and things. The second is watchfulness, meaning um, back in those times, you know, back at, historically it meant being careful that your, your property was not seized by robbers or got swept away by floods or, you know, haha. Um, it, that it, he, that you're, you keep watchfulness over it. And I think a modern understanding of this would be whatever money that you've accrued, that you're careful with it, that you invest it wisely, that you save, etc. The third is good friends associating with people who are wise. And if you're with people who are wise, you'll have more welfare happiness. And then the fourth is balanced livelihood, which in this case it says, knowing his income and expenses, a householder leads a balanced life neither extravagant nor miserly. So this is really key, neither extravagant nor miserly. Knowing that, thus, his income will stand in, in excess of his expenses and not his expenses in excess of his income. So it would, would lead one to believe that the Buddha was not in favor of credit cards. 
He then goes on to say, wealth has, um, there are four sources of destruction of wealth, okay? The first is debauchery, drunkenness, gambling, and then friendship with evildoers. (laughs) Be careful who you hang out with. And then he said, but wealth is not enough. And what this means is, so, so the Buddha was encouraging people to develop, if, if you're out in the world, then you develop a, you know, a good financial base. But he says that's not enough. That wealth can often lead to much confusion and unhappiness. So what's important is that we develop our inner life. And then he said, there are four conditions of spiritual progress. The first is faith. The second is virtue, so practicing the precepts. The last one is wisdom, so knowing the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, meditation, cultivation of wisdom in our hearts and minds. And then the, uh, the, the other one that is so interesting is charity. Okay, The charity is a condition of spiritual progress. That donation and giving and dana, as we broadly interpret it, is, not, is a condition for our own like, inner peace and happiness. And he says, The householder dwells with a heart free from avarice, devoted to charity, delighting in generosity, attending to the needy, delighting in the distribution of alms. So this is a condition for happiness, how generous we can be. So I like to I like I look at this text that the Buddha was offering us, you know, thousands of years ago, and I think, well, what does it mean now in contemporary times? And the first thing that I I really I really look at is this piece that says neither miserly nor extravagant, and this is important. So it's kind of like, well, then where are we? Where do we fall on this? So I know that in some Buddhist circles there are people who feel very um, they, they're, they associate poverty with virtue. And there's a lot of, I've, I've noticed this in the Buddhist world for some time, and you may not be in this category, but there are some of us who think that money is this horrible thing. You know, money is evil, money is dirty, money isn't spiritual, money is separate from the realm of transcendence, from my spiritual practice. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of support that you see around this. And you see, you know, there, voluntary, particularly voluntary poverty as a virtue. You see it in Christianity, you see it across religions, you see it in the Dharma. Monasticism is seen as the highest form of living. Now, it, that's fine, and if we are, that's, it's wonderful. I mean, it's an incredible opportunity to be a monk or a nun. But if you're a lay person and you start living like you're a monk or a nun, it can get into some problems. I know for myself, I started meditating when I was quite young, and so I never went through, um, you know, a phase of building myself up financially. And, so I, and I actually lived with quite a bit of aversion to money. And I thought money was bad. I was, it, it, it kind of opposed my politics. I hated capitalism. I hated, I, I thought money wasn't spiritual. Materialism was evil. And, you know, there, there's a lot of good reason for thinking these things, at least. So I thought that I had a lot of aversion. You know, I just thought, I don't want to know about money. I don't want to think about money. I don't want to have anything to do with money. And so I really didn't. And then I got to a certain point in my life where I started realizing that there's aversion here. And when you have aversion to something, it's usually worth investigating. That's been my experience. 
So I began to look at how I was feeling about money and what it was, what that was about, what this aversion was about. And when, one of the things that happened was during that time I read this book called The Soul of Money. I don't know if some of you have um, met Lynn Twist or you know, she's a fundraiser, wonderful fundraiser. And in the book she talks about how she was going on a fundraising trip to India where she was meeting with the son of the great philanthropist who funded Gandhi's movement. And I read that and I thought, Gandhi's movement was funded? <laughs> You're kidding me. It never occurred to me in a million years that, that Gandhi's movement was funded. And I, and, um, I, I had heard this, you know, I'd, I'd heard this famous quote and I didn't understand it until that moment. And the quote was, it took, it, t- it took millions of rupees to keep Gandhi in poverty. And when I started, when I, I've since learned that there was that people who were there during during that time. They've told me stories about seeing these trains with huge numbers of people on them, and um, and that somebody was paying for this, like a whole train going across India to go to a protest. And Gandhianism for me represents sort of my ultimate in the spiritual and the political coming together. And I was so moved by that, and so shocked that there was money underneath. And I realized, well, of course, you know, I'm really missing this piece of what's um, of life, in a sense. And so after that point, I began a process of really exploring, examining my relationship to money and trying to get to a healthy place around money and a place where I could feel uh, that it wasn't ruling me. You know, I felt I felt really, really because I was hating it so much and really so scared about it. I could. I wasn't in a healthy relationship, and of course, what I began to find was that money wasn't about just money. That money was about power, and self-confidence, and place in the world. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful journey to really explore money from a dharma perspective, you know, and seeing it how it interweaves into my dharma life. So from the other side, so that's, that's kind of the miserly side, the side of the, the fear and aversion towards money. And then there's the other side that the Buddha warned against, the extravagant side. And extravagance, you know, this is such a, it's such a funny um, culture that we live in. And when we think about Buddhism, we talk about Buddhism coming to, through all these countries throughout history, that, Buddha, that the Buddhism went into China and Tibet and Sri Lanka and so forth. And each time it entered those countries, it merged with the countries and it became, and it took on different qualities of the religions that were already there. So for instance, in China, it took on some Confucianism or in Tibet, it took on some of the Bon religion, the shamanic religion and the, and the Hinduism. And so it merged together and now it's come to America and guess what it's merged with? Consumerism, right? You know, so here we have a Buddhist, we have this Buddhist, you can open up any Buddhist magazine and you see the alarm clocks and the Zafus and the Buddhas for sale, I mean, you can go shopping right there. And, um, and, I'm not, and I'm not judging this as good or bad, I'm just, I'm just really interested in exploring it, honestly. And so we see that oftentimes the people in the convert Buddhist centers, not the people, not in the immigrant Buddhist centers across the country, and not in certain forms of Buddhism, but in, the, in some kinds of Buddhism, like Spirit Rock, it's predominantly people who are more wealthy. And, you know, it's gotten the nickname, I'm sure some of you have heard this, but that it's the upper middle way, right? <laughs> and um, 
I guess you haven't heard it, but <laughs> anyway, it, it, this is this is this is something for us to examine as a community. What does it mean in terms of the Dharma mostly coming? Th- these incredible teachings that are mostly accessible to people who have means, and what does it mean that retreats are expensive? And of course, there are scholarships, and there's all these attempts. Spirit Rock has done tremendous work to make it more accessible. But it's just something for us to keep exploring as we look at this question of dharma and money. The questions that begin to arise in the extravagance category are the questions about how much is enough. You know, as a Buddhist practitioner, as a meditator, What is your own relationship to money? Do you feel that you should only make a certain amount of money or you should only spend a certain amount of money? Or should you be giving away? Should you be donating? The Buddha said one of the conditions of happiness was charity. You know, how much money should you be giving away? Is there a conscious process that you hold in your life around it? Is it connected to your spiritual practice? And really that's the question I'm looking at. The whole, this whole thing is how do we connect our financial life to our spiritual practice? What about voluntary simplicity? Does that seem like, should a Buddhist be voluntarily simple, live with voluntary simplicity? Uh, should we do socially responsible investing only? You know, this is a question. Because if you look at your own relationship to the precepts, how does it affect investing? How does it affect um, how you feel about money? You know, so many of us live with a lot of fear and anxiety around money. It's really common that many people, and no wonder in the society where the safety net is getting ripped away from us, so of course we feel fear. So the question is, what if we're, as a Buddhist practitioner, what do we want our relationship to be towards money? This is a wonderful book that came out about four or five months ago called Hooked, Buddhist Writings on Greed, Desire, and the Urge to Consume. And it's all a set of essays in here, but I just wanted to read a couple of things. This is um, from a Thai Buddhist philosopher who wrote a book called Buddhist Economics, although this is just quoted in this chapter. And he talks about moderation. He says, Moderation is the defining characteristic of Buddhist economics. Knowing moderation means knowing the optimum amount How much is just right? It's an awareness of that optimum point where the enhancement of true well-being coincides with the experience of satisfaction. The optimum point or point of balance is attained when we experience satisfaction at having answered the need for quality of life or well-being. Consumption, for example, which is attuned to the middle way, must be balanced to an amount appropriate to the attainment of well-being rather than the satisfaction of desires. Thus, in contrast to the classical economic equation of maximum consumption leads to maximum satisfaction, we have moderate or wise consumption leading to well-being. So that's some thoughts from a, more, from a, B- a Buddhist understanding of economics, although there's plenty of people in Buddhist countries who are not practicing Buddhist-based economics. There was a study done about, I don't know, a while back about how much money um, brings happiness. 
and some of you may have heard of this, but it was this woman interviewed all these people from all different range of backgrounds and tried to figure out if there was amount of money that buys happiness. And what she found out was that um, up to fifteen, excuse me, up to fifty thousand dollars buys happiness. Okay, this was, I don't know when this was, it might have been a couple of years ago, it certainly probably wasn't in Marin, but any, a year ago, it was, I don't know, I don't know, but let's just, let's just pick a number, let's say 50000 there was actually an article in the LA Times saying that $70,000 is the poverty level in LA, really scary, um, for a family. Anyway, but up to 50000 Right, you're still getting food and you know getting medical and your home and all of that. So, so without that much, according to this, according to this study, you're, there's not a certain amount of happiness. And then once you reach fifty thousand, there's no correlation with happiness, no matter how much money you have, until you get into the really, really, really high numbers, like millions, billions of dollars. So that's a really interesting study, I think. Money not money sort of does buy you happiness, and then it doesn't really buy you happiness. The point is that we don't talk about this. I've just started talking about it because I've been so interested, and I've been talking about it in different meditation groups, and I've been noticing that people really um, are wanting to talk about it because it's such a huge piece of our lives. And if we don't bring it under into the Dharma, into the lens of the Dharma, then we're sort of, we're sort of leaving out a part of ourselves. And I've had people ask me questions, like a man said, okay, well, I have a 15-year-old daughter, and I want her to feel like she has abundance in her life, but I don't want her to become materialistic. What do I do? You know, how do I think about this? How do I, as a practitioner, think about this? And then to just throw this in on top of it, but what does it mean to be trying to live an ethical life in the midst of an economy that has such vast injustice and such a disparity of wealth, you know, such incredible poverty and such extremes of wealth? And what what does it mean for us as practitioners to be trying to live amidst this? Is this something that we can think about or should be thinking about? I don't have the answer. I'm just curious whether we should be thinking about this as practitioners. So these are just some of my thinking around money and... um, Really, it comes down to taking this topic, this taboo topic, and bringing it into aspects of our lives that we are not so connected with, and um, bringing it in, making, shining the light of the Dharma into all these nooks and crannies of our lives. So, why don't we just take a moment to reflect and to see what comes up having me just having me talked about this. And so, as I said, I'd like to have a dialogue to hear what you think about all of this. I'm really, really curious. So, there's the mic here, and I don't know how that works. Do we pass it around? Yeah. Okay. Great. 
someone right there? I think part of the question is, um, or possibly part of the answer, um, is about abundance, how you view abundance. And is abundance the ability to have anything that you want to buy with your money, or is abundance uh, a lifestyle which means that mentally and physically you're in wonderful health and uh, you don't have any any major uh, health issues. Um, and I think that this is something, when my children were young, I taught them that they were abundant regardless of, of being a single parent and that we always did have enough to eat, and yet there were a few times when it was slim, but there was always enough food, but that they... That, that their sense of abundance was that no matter what they had, they had some amount that they could share with someone else. So uh, for me, it's, it's not so much the acquisition of something big in the bank. It's how do you feel about what you have to what, with what you ha work mm -hmm. with. Yeah. yeah, that's a great way of putting it and thinking about it. Um, I think I was brought up like you were about money being dirty. Mm -hmm. And I had an aversion to it until I had to raise children and uh, stop getting from my mama and papa what I needed mm -hmm. and then had to have people who... I had to be responsible for the survival of others. And then money took on a totally different mm -hmm. look. And I found myself doing a lot of things at times, or some things, that I didn't like. Mm. Mm. Uh, one of the things I've noticed, uh, being around places where we get the wisest advice and learnings, including the Buddha places and places like Esalen and so on, that... I could rarely afford those lessons, huh. almost never, for a long, long time. And I wondered about that as I looked recently at a, a drumming session that we're going to have this week, and I told my grandchild about it because she loves to drum and tries to do it as often as possible, and she said, where am I going to get $60, Grandma? And... You know, I, it made me think, as I do frequently, about our offerings, regardless of the scholarship, because she can't do anything about the scholarship part, uh, that we should be offering things, you know, for $10, $5, $20, instead of 60 and 120 and so on. And when we have uh, groups of uh, uh, that are particularly uh, around attracting people of color. Most people of color, particularly if they're black, could not afford the prices that we have to pay here. So we need yeah. a, a Gandhi kind of <laughs> supplement to keep these things going and need a lot of thinking around that. Mm 
Yeah, well, these are, these are huge questions, and they're huge questions for Spirit Rock, because I know Spirit Rock is really concerned with having this accessible, wanting to share the Dharma as much as possible. And it's an institution, and it has a large staff and um you know, lights and grounds to maintain. You know, it's it's a huge question, and I think like like all nonprofits, we're struggling with it. Um, yeah. I think um, in my experience, there's a lot of shame that mm-hmm. comes around um, when we talk about money. Mm-hmm. Um, shame if you have money. How do you hide it? What do you do with it? And shame if you don't have money. Yeah. And I think the one of the just recently watching the the whole issue with the the um, hurricanes, and then seeing you know what happened with Katrina, and then what's going on in India at the moment, and the sense that money is very we can't separate money out from um, race and class and mm-hmm. and gender, and and I think that there's such taboo subjects as you say. We'd rather not talk about it because it's so complicated. Mm-hmm. And just recently I met a woman and she's involved, she set up what's called, I don't know, people might have heard of it, called Conscious Bookkeeping. Mm-hmm. And um, it's amazing. And um, she's, um, she gets groups of people together and starts to look at what are your, what's your personal story about money. It's not like a, it's not like a, um, like a concept that's out there or this overarching political thing that you can't get your brain around. It's like, you personally, what's your story? Mm. And people talk about it. Well, I have this money that's invested and I've never told anybody about it. Or talk about your secrets. And it's amazing to see what people keep as secrets around money. And I think if the beginning is to start like what you're doing, is to bring it forward and start to talk about it is a really great way to begin. Mm. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about shame. It's easier. It probably would have been easier for me to give a Dharma talk on sex tonight than yeah, to give one on money, right? People find it so much easier to get, you know, loosened down and talking yeah. about sex than they do about money. Yeah, yeah. And it's so it's so ironic because it's such the engine of so much in our culture, and yet we don't talk about it. And that's why that's why I'm interested. That's why I want it to see it talked about in Dharma communities. As well as out in the world in general, it sounds wonderful what that woman is doing. Yeah, yeah. great. Thanks. Yeah. Somehow, sitting next to somebody who spoke <coughs> inspires you to speak. <laughs> Happened over there too. Um, so my folks had generally more money than. Um, my friends' parents when I was growing up, and it was embarrassing for me. And uh, I'm interested in why it's embarrassing, and it because there's not. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with money. It's more how you relate to your money, and um, perhaps what you do with it. My parents are, I guess I would categorize them as materialistic. <laughs> um, but they're still good people. And I ended up following a path, a career path, that actually paid pretty well also. <laughs> um, 
and I try to be a good person, but I'm still embarrassed sometimes mm -hmm. about my salary mm -hmm. or about my parents or yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, you know, it's just an interesting topic. I appreciate you bringing it up. Sure. And thank you for saying that. And I'm sure you're not the only one in this room who has a history or current feelings of shame or embarrassment around money. We, I mean, it's so conditioned into us. And I think this is one place that the practice can be quite helpful is, you know, as with any strong or difficult emotion is learning to bring our mindfulness to this place. And actually... My belief is in a larger mindfulness, a group mindfulness of looking at it as a, as a collective, looking at it, I mean, as a society down the road. I don't know if we will, but, but um, the association people have with little money, with lots of money, there's shame on either end. You know, if you don't have any money, you feel ashamed. If you have too much money, you feel ashamed. So interesting. Yeah, thanks. I have sure. You have to listen to me now. Okay, go. <laughs> Um, slightly non sequitur, um, but I, I grew up in a Methodist church where I guess everything is follows the, the method of, of um, a Christian life. So my father always tithed on everything that he got. Mm -hmm. And so part of, the, part of a simple answer that I picked to this really complex question is I start by saying, okay, 10% of the money that I get is not mine. 10% mm -hmm. is, is that point number three or whatever it is, charity mm -hmm. to give away. And so to be attached to the charity, not attached to the money, rather than saying, how much do I need to be happy? I, don't, I mean, since I was in college, I gave away 10% of everything that came in through any grants or gifts or anything. Um, now, I, I, I like the idea that I've heard a number of my friends do, that say a graduated tithe that says, you know, I, I start with, figure out what do I need, kind of, and I give, give away 10% of that, and if I get more if I'm part of the upper middle path <laughs> then I can give away 15%, kind of like a graduated mm -hmm. tax rate. And so we start to give away more and more. We still retain 85% or 80% mm -hmm. or 70% of what we get on top yeah. of that. Um, but so, I mean, it's, it's just part of a, a simple way to start thinking outwards instead of thinking of how much do I need? Yes. Think about how much can I give? Yeah, it's great. I mean, tithing is such an incredible practice and I think we... Um, you know, it, it, we don't do it at Spirit Rock. We're asked to give Donna. And uh, I think sometimes Donna, and I've heard this from other people, that people feel like when people give a Donna talk, it's sort of this bad thing that we're not really supposed to talk about. We just sort of throw it in at the end of the retreat. And, um, but in fact, it's this incredible virtue, this practice of Donna, of generosity, that it's a practice that um, is considered a practice that leads to liberation, that it's not just a good practice for the social welfare, which is considered one, one aspect of it, but that each of us cultivating generosity, whether it's charity, whether it's tithing, whether it's giving money to, uh, to a monastery, whether it's uh, helping the needy, the sick, the poor, that all of these are cultivating qualities of our heart that are so um, extraordinarily needed in these times and they're so needed for our own liberation, for our own development, that it's a virtue of, it, it, we connect giving to, when, you're, when, you're minded, when we're giving and there's a quality of, 
of a ripened quality of giving, there's less of a sense of self, less of a sense of me. It's coming from a place of seeing the complete connectedness with other people. It's a very profound virtue, and we forget that. And so I, I, just, I think tithing is a terrific practice. I started doing it, and it actually felt scary for me. You know, it felt scary. So I started with, okay, can I give 5%? Like I started there. I have one friend who it felt really scary to, and she started with 1%. And she did that, and now she's working her way up because it feels, it ultimately has been feeling so wonderful to do it. But tithing is a great, yeah, a great way to go. Sure, the person. Oh, you or you spoke? Oh, <laughs> do, you want to, do you want to respond? Is it quick? Well, yeah, just quickly was the sense of that I think it starts with knowing what you've got and what you haven't got. Mm. I think we're so asleep about how much we've got or how much we don't have. I think that's a good place to begin. I agree. I agree. How about anybody who hasn't yet spoken? We'll go here and then the back. It's just a quick thought, but when um, he talked about the shame of having money, it brought to my mind that in our culture, you look down upon when you do make a lot of money and you don't spend it or you don't flaunt it. If you choose to live a, if you choose to live a simple life, a voluntarily simple life, even if you're wealthy or make a good salary, people look down on you. You know, for example, if you choose to rent rather than buy, even mm-hmm. though you could afford a house, or if you. For years, I had a really good salary, and I drove around in this old junky car, you know. And I was happy with it, but other people would look at me like, what are you driving mm-hmm. like a car? And it looks like you're a homeless person, you know, all that mm-hmm. junk in the back. And what's wrong with you? You know, and, and so there's this sort of, um, you know, as a Buddhist, if you decide to, to live simply with fewer possessions, as a lifestyle choice, mm-hmm. uh, then you you might face criticism or even jeopardy to your career because you're not driving the right car, wearing the right clothes, or associating in moneyed circles. That's and I th- I think these questions of status they're tied up so closely with questions of money and what our culture represents and what we think it's important to have and to be like. And I feel like we need to be examining these. I feel like as practitioners and as people, as people in our society, we need, to add, we need to keep questioning these. And that's why when the voluntary simplicity movement hit, I thought it was like a great, you know, it, it was, I thought it was a wonderful thing to introduce into the culture. And then at the same time, there are people who there's so much poverty in this country and in voluntary simplicity it's like it's not voluntary it is the way i live and so there's a bit of a contradiction in this but um but yeah yeah thank you somebody there were a couple of questions yeah okay thank you. um just interesting things that have come up in this discussion but one of the things that's been fascinating for me um, I've recently have um, become quite successful financially, and it was not really a, a set goal I had. It just um, it happened, and I had lived pretty simply and not valued money any more highly than anything else in my life throughout my life. Um, just was raised without a lot of it, never found that it was that important um, not to say I didn't have desires like everybody else, but what I found really interesting is the way people change their view of you 
based on how much money you have, it's just absolutely fascinating mm-hmm. and disturbing at the same time. And I'm I'm struggling through mm-hmm. not knowing or understanding how to deal with it. It's so new to me. Um, and not knowing what to do with it. So this question, thank you for bringing mm-hmm. it up. It's, it, it is incredibly complex. Um, but one of the things that I've learned in the last few years, suddenly having the ability um, and the blessing of being able to give to charities at times is the, the, the decision. It's overwhelming of where with mm-hmm. what cause is more important. Should I be supporting people across uh, in another country who are who are so poverty stricken my own country when Katrina hit it was devastating to see that level of poverty um the environment is important do i support that it's just that's so overwhelming to know where where to help it, it, i'd like to help everywhere as i know everyone would mm-hmm. so when you finally are to a point where you can um, and you've been given that that opportunity. It's hard to know. It's it's hard to know what to do. So thank you for bringing it up. It's good to talk about. Yeah. And I encourage you to talk with each other. I don't know how well you know each other, but I feel like one of the ways that we can move forward in this is through communicating and supporting each other. So just to say that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I... Uh, I just I also experienced uh, well, for myself, and I just really appreciate you bringing up the topic because it made it very clear to me uh, how I've been aware of it. But when I was a kid, I think that I think that conditioning is a tremendous factor. Of course, that's just a non secular. But I I remember when I was just thirteen that uh, my father dropped dead, and one of my first thoughts were childish thoughts, but sort of. Good, I'm going to be the boss. I'll have mother. I'll have the car. <laughs> and I punished myself. I felt like, therefore, don't you punish me. I was brought up with this heavy sin and guilt, perg- love, I mean, mortal sin, etc. And I trip, uh, terrifically then said, I won't have. And in some levels, although I've gone uh, actually into dealing with forgiveness on a major level because I run an uh, alliance, a forgiveness alliance, which is, I've, I haven't had, in a way, what, what uh, and I feel that uh, it's so important, therefore, to be to the point that you, you break out by through forgiveness or through uh, Buddhism or whatever way, just talking about it, like everybody, I'm sure, here tonight, is looking at their own situations and becoming aware and just becoming aware of it, uh, where you actually feel that you can take steps beyond, you know, and be sort of fortified by the whole uh, group presence or support. Mm-hmm. And then the conditioning of these people that are in poverty. I mean, you know, like having been put down in various respects, uh, let's say with Katrina, with, uh, let's say, blacks in our country. I mean, it's it's a huge, huge problem, obviously, which is uh, very deep, and I do appreciate uh, you bringing it up because it is is by avoiding it going into this denial we perpetuate it and it just uh, it uh, it it needs to be busted out and so that everybody can live better and you know more freely and fully and happily thanks yeah thanks for saying that there are people, there's someone in the back who wanted to sorry behind you 
I used to do the finances for a spiritual organization, and um, I had this very profound experience one time where uh, someone brought over the donation money from the crew guys. There was a whole area of guys who did construction work and stuff. And my thought when they brought it in was, oh, God, the crew guy money. It's all, you know, $1 bills folded up into uh, these tiny little squares. And I got the money, and I had this experience of it actually having a perfumed fragrance and a vibration that moved me. It was like a vibration of love. And I realized that they had given this money with their love and their devotion Mm. and with prayers, and that that actually affected the vibration of the money. And I, I really thought about, okay, you know, they do say in some traditions that money is God. And I think that there is something to how you value it and the intention with which you honor it, give it with, um, you know, the feeling that you have when you make that donation mm-hmm. can be different. It can profoundly affect your life if it's done with your heart and your love and thought of God. Mm-hmm. So it just, it really affected me. Yeah, that's a great story. And it it's so true. I mean, so much of when examining this question of money is what is our motivation behind it? And how do we, you know, when we give, what kind of motivation are we giving with? When we receive, what kind of motivation are we receiving with? And really tuning into that as a practice, really as a, as a, as a kind of as a daily practice even. Yeah, there's a movie that's just come out, shown at the Mill Valley Film Festival, called Sound of Soul. Mm-hmm. And in this film, a, Buddhist, a Thai Buddhist priest um, talks about the destructive power of money. And he just asks his audience to imagine, what if every Chinese person had a car? Good question. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a website you can go on where you um, you you put in your ecological footprint, and you type in the size of your house and how many air, how much gallons per miles per gallon your car gets and how much um, how many flights you take per year, and then it calculates it all, and then it tells you. You, you need four planets in order to live the life that you lead. <laughs> so just imagine, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. There was someone back there. Again. No? Maybe not. Over here? There's a couple over here. And uh. I can relate to a lot of the personal issues around having money. Certainly, I don't track my money at all. And, you know, my wife just had a job for four months full time and now it's stopped. And we don't even think about the impact. Like, well, our income doubled, now it's in half. And we just, there is a bit of shame around sort of figuring it all out. But mm-hmm. I was just going to say, I think this is complicated for us as Americans, at least for me, by being in the wealthiest acknowledged globally the wealthiest country in the world and so frowned upon and so misintended and so, not always there's a lot of good that happens but certainly our government 
has a lot of intention around the use of money and the spending of money that doesn't at all doesn't map onto us as individuals. And for me, there it adds to a sense of shame mm-hmm. about the concept of wealth when so much is done in my name and with my taxes that is generating you know generating such anger around the world that it just is another level of complication when thinking about wealth that that mm-hmm. I think is resonating for me more and more as the world is becoming a more angry place on a bigger scale. Thank you. I, I, um, I think it's really important for us to be looking at that dimension as well and that it's the personal and it's also our relationships and it's the world at large. And, and, and so as we try to find right relationship within our own individual practice and relationship to money, it also is what is right relationship to the larger global economy. And um, that one is really hard, <coughs> really hard, yeah, yeah. Um, I saw somebody, there could people, someone back there? We'll do this a little bit longer. Um, I'm really glad you brought this up, too, and also really uncomfortable. I mean, realizing, like, God, it would have been so much easier if you talked about something else. <laughs> I just wanted to listen and go home. Um, <laughs> but I really, uh, I'm remembering when I lived in an intentional community, and it was, this was years ago, and it was a community that had several businesses, and they were, man, they were conscious from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. And they made quite a profit in the millions, but they were living at below poverty level, and they were dumpster diving and the whole thing. And it was amazing to me when I started, you know, working in bookkeeping to see that. And it just stopped me in my tracks. And I was remembering something I had read that money is energy and it's perception. And it just, I mean, even to this day, it, I still remember that example of there was so much shame. And it's my perception that it was shame, you know. It, I'm sure it was a lot of things. It, the... It was like they couldn't live in abundance. Mm-hmm. They had to continue to live in poverty. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like it was that imbalance that gave them this sense of we're doing the right thing because we're suffering. And that sort of addictive cycle of suffering that, in, you know, in my opinion, <laughs> perpetuates that cycle of poverty because mm-hmm. it's become an elevated state psychologically. You mm-hmm. know, in terms of a theory. So if I make money, I'm a bad person. And that, to me, seemed more conducive to actually creating that, that sense of poverty within that community much more than the actual money mm-hmm. that was being made. And it's, I, I'm still sort of resonating with that lesson, going, you know, all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really important, and it goes back to the question of abundance that um, someone someone brought up earlier. And and um, really, how how can we live in abundance? I mean, the Buddha in, in Buddhist terms, the Buddha did not want you to live completely scared around money. I mean, scare the feel, the emotion of fear was something he wasn't actually wanting us to um, to develop. We want to cultivate a, a state of fearlessness. Now, this does not mean 
you know, profligate, spending whatever you want, abundance as materialism, abundance as excess. But this this middle place where we actually can have can have some enjoyment of wealth and abundance and not live in fear and yet um, you know, do it really consciously. There's this piece, I didn't read it, but this is something that he said around, um, this is again the guy, the Buddhist economics guy, Prabhupada, who said, according to the Buddhist teachings, wealth should be used for the purpose of helping others. It should support a life of good conduct and human development. According to this principle, when wealth arises for one person, the whole society benefits. And although it belongs to one person, it's just as if it belonged to the whole community. A wealthy person who uses wealth in this manner is likened to a fertile field in which rice grows abundantly for the benefit of all. So this is not about living in poverty and you know shame and fear about money. It is about, as a layperson, really having an abundance. But it's so much, it's, it's asking this question, like, what is abundance? And what is one's relationship to abundance? So yeah, I'm glad you told us that story. It's good. Yeah. Just a few more minutes of discomfort. <laughs> you have to do this. I'm like your English I, teacher in high school. I'd just like to share that um, I think that to really have true abundance, you must first have contentment. Mm. That you won't get to this true place of true abundance without contentment. Because with contentment, you have enough to begin with. And when you have enough, then you can become abundant. Mm. But I think that as we sit and practice our meditation and stuff, that we're trying to, in a sense, create an abundance of peace or an abundance of compassion. And those things are very easily shared in this community. When you're, you, know, you walk around and you're peaceful and compassionate, everyone will accept that feeling from you. And I think that that could be a model for money in the sense that when we have money, to learn how to share it as easily as we could share our compassion and our peace. And that... The first step may be just one percent of it, but I think that um, that's about all I want to share. Yeah, thank you. And it's important that we see it in connect, as you're pointing out, in connection to the abundance of qualities of the heart that we carry, that we cultivate here, you know, and that money, uh, this 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 generosity with our money as this other cultivation, just like those others. That's a great point. Yeah. Uh, unlike a lot of uh, the other people in this room. Um, I was raised in um, a pretty impoverished family, but I had a wealth of abundance Mm -hmm. because it had to do uh, with the love that I received from my family. Um, My mother made my clothes, and I thought I was wearing something designed especially for me. That was my attitude. Uh, while all my classmates were showing their labels, I was showing the the uh, hand-stitched hem that my mother did. So uh, what I've learned through the years, and now I live in Marin County and have this label of, well, I live in Marin County, so I must be a multimillionaire. I'm not that either. Um, but what I've learned is that Money is not an object that is the same to everyone and that if you think of it as a tool and a tool that can be used like a gun or a tool that can be used to plow a field or a a 
and plant a seed someplace. If you think of it that way, because what it, it has bought me is the ability to go to other countries and understand other cultures, uh, a way of being comfortable enough to not be fearful, a way of being comfortable enough to uh, create uh, some college funds for my nieces and nephews that are living in trailers uh, right now. And um, so I think it really has to do with your own attitude and what you do with it, not what it is inherently. It isn't inherent in any way. It's just a matter of what you do with it. And I will say that um, we should be ashamed to have the people in New Orleans for all these years living the way they have lived while we have lived the way we live. And I don't understand why there hasn't been any sort of collection go around this room for those people. You know, I've, I, I, I have to tell you, I've been here the past few Monday nights and I haven't seen it. And so, I, th I think that's absolutely wonderful. But I think we need to keep that in our consciousness because there are a lot of people out there in a lot of need. And when you're in this county, I, I have a lot of friends that are very artistic people. And that doesn't necessarily mean they have to be poor, but I will tell you they're hanging on by their uh, fingernails and they have difficulty in living in this county and how they're perceived and how they live. Hmm. Thank you. So I think that may be enough about money. <laughs> Um, I appreciate your engaging in this dialogue with me that actually it's really for all of us because it's, it's such a scary and difficult topic. And as I said earlier, when we come up against something that feels scary and difficult and that we want to deny and put away, it's usually a good sign that we should pay attention to it. So that was my interest in bringing this here to all of you. And for my own personal investigation and ongoing study, exploration personally, spiritually, and politically about money. So I appreciate you um, participating and enlightening me as well. So why don't we just end with a short sitting?
This talk was given by Diana Winston at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 10, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.